What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by Anchor Light. For more information about all of Anchor Light's artistic and creative endeavors, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. Just a quick note that today's episode contains details of a violent and graphic nature. The crimes are over a century old, but the information is still horrifying. Please take special care when listening. I've always thought that the expansion of 19th century London must have been a real sight to behold. I think of the glittering innovation of the Great Exposition of 1859, held in the iron and glass crystal palace that attracted swells of people from around the globe as a wonderful microcosm of the capital as a whole. Just as the Great Exposition welcomed record numbers of people during its five and a half month run, London too was increasing by leaps and bounds. During the 19th century, the capital of England grew exponentially, becoming, by the 1850s, the largest city in the world. A commitment to so-called motive power, the energy used to produce power machinery, led to expansive railway systems that connected the center of London to its environs and the countryside and to what would eventually be considered the suburbs. London claimed the world's first underground metro system, and the city was also powered by horse-drawn trams. All of this transportation served not only to carry its citizens around the city, but they also delivered immigrants in from all over the world who were motivated to relocate for any number or combination of reasons. London in the 19th century had political and religious freedoms, making it a stable alternative to many other countries in the world. Its economy was robust, and London's positioning as a port city only served to enhance its commitment to industries like trade, shipping, and fishing. As such, London became the place, along with America, for people the world over to begin their fresh starts. But that isn't to say that the 19th century in London was all roses. The vast expansion the city experienced had some pretty awful downsides. It was overcrowded, and the infrastructure was just not able to keep up with the massive influx of people from all over England and the world, jockeying for better opportunity for themselves and their families. On the periphery especially, congested slums started popping up to hold in these people who had little money and little means. Thousands of people just slammed together in a place whose water and sewer systems, which were brand new at the time, just couldn't do enough to be salubrious. So disease was rampant and morale was low. And then, of course, there was the crime. Much was made of the so-called criminal classes during this period. The Victorians were terrified of the lower classes, especially down-and-out men hiding and lurking in the shadows of the outskirts of the city, who they thought were just waiting for the opportunity to arise for a well-timed theft, brawl, or even worse. Much of the crime during the second half of the century went unreported, particularly because a lack of trust in Bobbies, the city police, who were established in 1829 by Sir Robert Peel, but also because some of the crimes weren't necessarily considered all that criminal. Theft, for example, could sometimes be chalked up to a simple, quote, loss of property. And domestic violence, well, it wasn't really illegal, was it? What did get reported, and what buoyed the sales of newspapers, 
was gruesome murder. And if that murder just happened to have a titillating element of sexual misconduct, well, then you've hit a newspaper home run. But in 1888, Londoners clamoring for a bit of excitement to spice up the drudgery of their unhealthy lives got more than they bargained for. They got weeks of abject terror surrounding a madman who slaughtered women in London's East End and was never caught. And more than 100 years later, we are still no closer to really identifying one of the most terrible serial killers of all time. Or are we? Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. In this season six of the Art Curious podcast, we are uncovering the dastardly deeds of several of art history's famed artists, including their involvement or participation in Murder Most Foul. Today's true crime topic, it's the updated first half of our very popular season one episode. Was British painter Walter Sickert really Jack the Ripper? This is the Art Curious podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. More ink has been spilled about Jack the Ripper than almost any other comparable figure or crime, and much of that has to do with the unsolved aspects of the story. So if you are seeking in-depth descriptions of the horrible Whitechapel murders of 1888, there are legions of books that will fill you in on every grotesque detail. But chances are that you probably know the rough outline of the tale anyway, as it has permeated history and popular culture. And it's not just books. There are walking tours of the murder locations in London, ending in a pub to allow visitors the chance to get a nice stiff drink to bolster their spirits. There was also the BBC America show, Ripper Street, which imagined London in the wake of the crimes as detectives sought answers in hopes of warding off new killings. And for the Hollywood spin, there's of course the 2011 thriller From Hell, based on the graphic novel of the same name and starring Johnny Depp as a police investigator intent on tracking Jack down. Naturally, interest in the Ripper crimes isn't limited to England or even the United States. Strangely enough, the Boston Globe reported in 2013 that not only was there a comedic play in China depicting the murders, and yes, I did say comedic, but in Japan, a musical featuring a highly popular Korean pop star named Sung Min was also a hot ticket item for a very long period of time. And yes, I did say musical. In this episode, which will be the first half of our two-part series on Jack the Ripper, we'll run through a brief history of the murders and give a little biographical background to Walter Sickert. The next episode, we'll delve into the supposed connections between the Ripper and Sickert. Before we begin, I would like to remind that what you are about to hear is obviously of a violent and gruesome nature, so please take extra care when listening to this show and do not listen in the company of young children. And now, here's how the story of Jack the Ripper went down. On the morning of August 31, 1888, a sex worker named Marianne Nichols, known as Polly Nichols, was discovered dead in the section of London known as Whitechapel. Her throat had been severed by two deep cuts, but that wasn't all. The lower part of her abdomen had also been ripped open, revealing an incredibly deep and jagged wound. 
A sad reality of the late 19th century is that prostitution, which was legal at the time as long as it didn't cause a domestic disturbance, came with the potential price of losing one's life. The death of a sex worker at the hands of a client wasn't all that unusual. But Polly Nichols's death, or more precisely, the manner in which she died, was so violent and bloody that its discovery immediately caused a furor and panic in Whitechapel. Killings may not have been all that unusual, but killing someone in this way was unthinkable. The uproar and terror produced by the Nichols murder was striking, but it was assumed to be a single event. How wrong that assumption was. Just eight days later, another murder was committed, also in the East End of London. The body of Annie Chapman had been discovered early on that morning with her throat severed by two cuts, just as had been done to poor Polly Nichols. And like the Nichols murder, Chapman too had her abdomen sliced wide open. But this time, that wasn't all. Her entrails were pulled away and draped over her shoulder and was later discovered that her uterus had been fully removed. Who was this maniac, this deranged killer? There were very few clues at the time, and even fewer leads. At the end of September, the killer, or at least we can assume it was the killer, contacted the local police and identified by the name Jack the Ripper. Jack warned that his actions were really just beginning. He was preparing to strike again. So Londoners lived in abject fear that their wives, mothers, and daughters might be next victims. Was he simply targeting sex workers, or was any woman a potential target? And would Jack move on to attack men as well? Or worse, children? They didn't have to wait long to see who the next victim would be, though. Three days after the letter arrived, Jack the Ripper struck again. But this time, he struck twice. The killings of September 30, 1888 would later be known as the so-called double event. The first victim was a sex worker named Elizabeth Stride, whose corpse was discovered at about 1 a.m. in Dutfield's yard, again in Whitechapel. Like the others, Stride's death was brought about by a very deep slice across the throat, which severed the artery and brought on massive and quick blood loss. But it looked like Jack the Ripper had been interrupted, perhaps, in the middle of his awful activity. Stride's clothes had been pushed up over her body, but her abdomen remained intact. And it seems that because he wasn't able to complete his mutilation, Jack the Ripper was left raging with feelings of inadequacy and incompletion. So he chose to strike again. Less than one hour later and less than a mile away from Stride's murder, a policeman named Edward Watkins walked into Whitechapel's Mitre Square for his usual patrol beat. Just 15 minutes prior, he had walked the same route through and around the square and he had noticed nothing out of place. On his next round, however, he discovered a body in this corner of the square, which would later be identified as that of Catherine Eddowes. And by now, you surely know, as Patrolman Watkins probably did, what Watkins was about to discover. Like her unfortunate counterparts, Eddowes had her throat severed and her abdomen was savagely ripped open by a long, deep, jagged wound. And like Annie Chapman before her, Eddowes' entrails had been removed. Her intestines had been cut out and now lay beside her body, and the majority of her uterus had been removed too, along with her left kidney, which went missing. But here, the Ripper again upped the ante and sliced her face as if the mutilation hadn't been bad enough. Upon seeing the body at the crime scene, another police officer would later note that Eddowes looked 
quote, like she'd been ripped up like a pig in the market, unquote. What was the police response to the Ripper murders? And after the double event, were things going to improve in Whitechapel? I know you already know the answer to that question. And it's coming up next, right after this break. So many of us think that we don't have time to learn a new topic or pick up another hobby, but we actually do with The Great Courses Plus. This educational streaming service makes learning so easy and accessible because there are thousands of lectures on practically any topic that you can think of with objective, in-depth information from some of the best teachers in the world. And the best thing is that you don't have to make time to learn because The Great Courses Plus fits into your schedule anytime and anywhere. You can listen along like I do when you're doing your dishes or going to the gym, or you can watch it on your lunch break. I recommend checking out their brand new course called Visual Literacy Skills, How to See. This course ties into these conversations that we've been having these days about mindfulness, about how to take everyday visuals and see them in a new way. I find these relaxing and very short, so they're great with somebody who's looking to look at art or pick up photography or any other visual medium as a very restful outlet. And I want you to start making learning a daily part of your routine with The Great Courses Plus. My listeners have access to this fantastic offer, a full month for free. And you can check out everything from watercolor painting to sustainable living and everything in between. So sign up now through my special URL to start your free month. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. There is a gorgeous naturally occurring gemstone that is so rare that there's not enough of it on the planet to actually use it to craft a single piece of jewelry. What is this incredible substance? It's moissanite, the world's most brilliant gem and one of its rarest minerals. So rare that it has to be made rather than mined. So that's where Charles and Colvert comes in. They have been creating and perfecting moissanite for over 20 years, forming a revolutionary stone that is unrivaled for its brilliance, durability, cut, color, and clarity, all at a value that is unparalleled. And it is ethically sound, as well as a happy fit for the planet, with 95% of the precious metals used in their jewelry being recycled. Charles and Colvard created gems are the pinnacle of moissanite, with their brand Forever One being unparalleled in the marketplace. And they offer everything from loose gems and fine jewelry to engagement and bridal fashions, and they're all offered in 14 karat white, yellow, and rose gold, and available in both classic and fancier shapes. So everything from your traditional round, square, cushion cut, and princess cuts to heart shapes and even their own vintage-inspired rose cut. Now, let me tell you a little bit about my incredible Moissanite solitaire earrings. Like all of Charles and Colvert's jewelry, their earrings are double refractive so that they are more sparkling and more brilliant than any other pair of earrings I have ever owned. And the compliments just won't stop coming. I love these earrings. And lots of other people do too, with Charles and Colvert products being seen in Refinery29, Pop Sugar, How They Asked, She Finds, Town and Country, and Bridal Guide. Learn more and get 20% off with our special listener offer at charlesandcolvert.com slash artcurious. Again, that's charlesandcolvert, C-O-L-V-A-R-D, dot com slash artcurious. 
Blaze is cloud storage that's astonishingly easy and low cost. It's unlimited computer backup for both Macs and PCs with no gimmicks or add-ons or gotchas for just $6 a month. With Backblaze, you can back up all your documents, music, photos, videos, drawings, projects, all of your data. And plus, you can restore files anywhere, either directly download them off the website or restore by mail by purchasing a restore via hard drive, which will then be sent to you via overnight FedEx. After you restore, you can then return the hard drive within 30 days to Backblaze for a full refund. Backblaze also has mobile apps so that you are able to access your files on the go and from anywhere in the world. To date, there have been over 40 billion files restored through Backblaze, and you can get in on this access. Join in for a free, fully featured trial at backblaze.com artcurious. You can go there, play with it, and start protecting yourself from potential bad times today. Visit backblaze.com artcurious to receive a fully featured 15-day free trial and support our show at the same time. Seriously, back your stuff up. Go to backblaze.com artcurious. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? I'm making Just keep it simple. I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros, two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Brav Bros. Good job. Welcome back to Art Curious. If there was one thing that Jack the Ripper enjoyed almost as much as killing, it was toying with the authorities. Not far from the scene of the crime, the police found an apron belonging to Eddowes discarded in a doorway. Above it, written in chalk, was the grammatically unfortunate sentence, quote, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing, unquote. Jews spelled J-U-W-E-S, by the way, so the Ripper was not only evil, ghastly, and anti-Semitic, but a terrible speller, too. The clue, though, has puzzled historians and Ripperologists, and yes, that's their official term, for over 125 years. Unfortunately, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Sir Charles Warren, quickly ordered the message to be rubbed off the wall. And so adamant was he about the removal of the inflammatory statement that he traveled to Whitechapel to erase it himself. Of course, this action occurred before any photographs could be taken of the chalk writing, so no handwriting analysis or further investigation could be done of that scene. Commissioner Warren would later explain his actions as being driven by the concern that the writing would spark anti-Semitic riots in an already uneasy city. But his strange methodology has led to accusations of a cover-up. Did he destroy a harmless piece of graffiti unrelated to the crimes? Or a genuine clue left by Jack the Ripper? And if it was a clue to the identity or the motivation of the murderer, then what did it mean? To this day, experts are still unsure. But one outcome is clear. Sir Charles Warren was overwhelmed with criticism for his decision, and so he resigned quickly after. Even in the midst of controversy, the London Metropolitan Police, headquartered at Scotland Yard, jumped into action, determined to get to the bottom of the murders and to arrest the killer quickly. A sizable corps of investigators conducted inquiries of homes and businesses throughout Whitechapel, 
attempting to gather forensic evidence to the best of their abilities. And again, a reminder that this is the late 19th century we're talking about, so things like DNA testing obviously didn't exist yet. And heck, they didn't even know what DNA was at that point. According to police records, over 2,000 people were interviewed and questioned about the Whitechapel murders, more than 300 of those people were officially investigated, and 80 people were detained. However, no one was clearly identified as the killer. Frightened and frustrated, concerned citizens in London's East End felt that the police presence in their area just wasn't enough. And so they took matters into their own hands, creating a volunteer team called the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. Committee members patrolled the streets day and night looking for suspicious characters. They petitioned the government to raise a reward for information about the killer, and they hired private detectives to question witnesses independently. Shortly after the committee's development, its chairman, a man named George Lusk, received a package, and its contents were appalling. Inside was half of a human kidney and a handwritten letter which noted that it was written, quote, from hell, unquote. Chock full of grammatical errors and spelling issues, it read as follows, quote, Mr. Lusk, Sir, I send you half a kidney I took from one woman, reserved it for you, another piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the blade knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed. Catch me if you can, Mr. Lusk. Unquote. Was this truly a letter from Jack himself? Although we can't know for sure, many believe that the so-called from hell letter is the real deal, especially because of that inclusion of the kidney. Now, remember, Catherine Eddowes had had her left kidney removed, but there was a true sense of relief only a few days after the From Hell letter was delivered to Lusk because the majority of October 1888 passed without crime or further word from Jack the Ripper. Citizens and police alike hoped against hope that either the killer had been caught during the course of the ongoing investigation or that he had fled the area, or, most likely, that he had, for some reason, chosen end his killing spree. They shouldn't have been relieved, though, as a fifth murder would prove to be the most gruesome and gory of them all. As you may remember, a few weeks back, I discovered Everly Well, the amazing at-home wellness test that helps you better understand your health. I received my Everly Well at-home lab test and tested myself for food sensitivities. And a few days back, I received the results. And what I found out is that I'm good for most things, but that my body is very sensitive to egg whites. I had no idea. But looking back, it does make good sense. And now Everly Well has given me this newfound sense of control over my health. Finally, I have some information that I can use. Everly Well offers more than 30 at-home lab tests for everything from food sensitivity to thyroid issues to STDs and heart health tests. Each Everly Well collection kit comes with super easy to follow instructions that take you step-by-step -step on how to collect your sample and return it with free shipping for examination, where it is then processed in a certified lab. Your results are reviewed by a board-certified physician, then they are sent directly to you digitally within just a few days. And Everly Well breaks down your test results in a really straightforward, personalized, and easy way. You can even share them with your doctor if you so choose by showing it to them on your mobile device. 
or if you prefer, you can set up a free discussion with a healthcare professional through the Everly Well platform. So I now know that I can limit my exposure to egg whites and give myself an easy solution to feel better right away. To start learning more about your health like I did, check out Everly Well at Home Lab Test today. For 15% off an Everly Well at Home Lab Test, visit everlywell.com slash artcurious and enter code artcurious. That's everlywell.com slash artcurious, code artcurious for 15% off your test. Everly Well, at home lab tests, your answers, your way. Away creates thoughtful products designed to change how you see the world. And they started with the perfect suitcase crafted with features that make travel more seamless. Away knows that everyone has a different travel style, and that's why they make their carry-ons in an array of colors, sizes, and materials so that they're made strong yet flexible and personalized to you. I recently tried out their bigger carry-on, which is their standard carry-on suitcase but sized up to make the most of the overhead bin. It has this lightweight, durable shell that is made for a lifetime of travel. And for someone like me, that is exactly what I want. And it comes with a limited lifetime warranty, which means that they'll fix or replace your bag if it ever gets damaged. All Away bags come with TSA-approved combination locks to keep your belongings safe, four 360-degree spinner wheels that guarantee a smooth ride, a removable laundry bag to separate your dirty clothes from your clean clothes, and you can also have an optional ejectable battery to keep your phone charged. All of this adds up to show that Away has come up with a wonderful design that takes away all these little niggling problems about when you travel. Knowing that Away will fix or replace my suitcase as soon as possible if anything ever breaks means that I never have to worry about my luggage, and I know that everything will fit because of their unique compression aspects. I love Away and I know you will too. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com artcurious and use promo code artcurious during checkout. Remember, $20 off your suitcase. Visit awaytravel.com artcurious and use promo code ARTCURIOUS during checkout to help us out. On November 9, 1888, a young Irish sex worker by the name of Mary Kelly was found dead in her own room, lying on her bed. Her mutilations were the most horrific inflicted on any of the victims, probably because, as others have pointed out, the Ripper performed his murder in the seclusion of a private home. He could do more because he had time to kill. Pardon the expression. Like the others, Kelly had been killed by having her throat sliced open, and the many mutilations that follow most likely occurred after her death. And according to the doctors who examined her body, they probably took up to two hours to complete. One of the doctors, a man named Thomas Bond, recorded notes from the grisly crime scene. He wrote, quote, The whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed, and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond all recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all down to the bone. The viscera were found in various parts, the uterus and kidneys with one breast under the head, the other breast by the right foot, the liver between the feet, the intestines by the right side, and the spleen on the left side of the body. The flaps removed from the abdomen and thighs were on a table. The face was gashed in all directions, the nose, the cheeks, eyebrows, and ears being partially removed. The lips were blanched and cut by several incisions running obliquely down to the chin. There were also numerous cuts extending irregularly across all the features." Unquote. As one onlooker reported, 
quote, it appeared to be the work of a devil, unquote. Mary Kelly's death is the last of what is known as the Canonical Five, or the five deaths that have been directly linked to Jack the Ripper. Other crimes, of course, have long been thought as possibly connected to him as well, but these have never been fully determined. And even all these years later, we still don't know who Jack the Ripper was, nor do we know why he committed his terrible deeds. And new suspects seem to bubble up out of the fog of Victorian history every few years. Jack has been identified as a frustrated lawyer, a Polish immigrant, a royal prince, a psychotic doctor, a disgruntled boyfriend of one of the victims, and even a madwoman, Jill the Ripper, they say. These are but a few of the many individuals who have been suspected of being the killer. And at the beginning of the 21st century, another person, long dead, was once again brought to the forefront of the greatest unsolved serial murder of all time. In 2002, crime and suspense novelist Patricia Cornwell, known for her highly popular series about the forensic sleuth Kay Scarpata, released a bombshell statement. She had purportedly solved the mystery of Jack the Ripper's identity, which had evaded researchers, historians, and police for over 100 years. And to those of us in the art world, her suspected killer hit a little close to home. A famous painter had committed the famous murders, she wrote in an accompanying book, which has the slightly awkward title of Portrait of a Killer, Jack the Ripper, Case Closed. Jack the Ripper, she said, was the British painter Walter Sickert. Okay, I have a slightly embarrassing confession to make. Prior to Cornwell's accusation, I had never even heard of Walter Sickert, and I was in graduate school at the time of the book's release, so I probably should have been more aware of him and his work. But to be fair, I wasn't and still am not a British painting specialist. And you could make the case that Walter Sickert isn't one of the true biggies, you know, one of those artists who you probably know by name and whose works immediately spring to mind in full color. But he isn't a nobody either. At the time of his death, he was considered one of the great British artists of the 20th century. He even gave painting lessons to Winston Churchill, of all people. So, who was Walter Sickert? And most importantly for us, how did he become associated with tales of Jack the Ripper? Walter Richard Sickert was born on May 31, 1860, in Munich, to a Danish-German father and an Anglo-Irish mother. He was the eldest of six children, and the family lived in Germany until Walt was eight years old, and then they relocated to England. Sickert's father, Oswald, was a painter and printmaker, and thus surrounded his son with the tools of his trade. So even though Walter himself had never had any formal training in art during his childhood, he picked up many of the basics from around his home. At the age of 18, Sickert began a career as an actor, appearing in small-scale productions and touring across England. But a few years later, he felt the pull of the visual arts, and painting in particular, was just too strong. And so, against his father's wishes, he decided to become an artist and enrolled in his first art classes. In 1882, Sickert had the supreme good luck of becoming an apprentice and studio assistant to the American painter James Abbott McNeil Whistler, who had been living in London and had quickly become one of Sickert's favorite artists. The following year, Whistler asked Sickert to act as a courier to deliver his famous portrait of the artist's mother to the Paris Salon, where he made the acquaintance of a second master artist, Edgar Degas. 
Over the next few years, he continued to learn from both Whistler and Degas, and he established himself as a talented and knowledgeable artist in his own right. Originally, his preferred subject matter was landscapes. But as time progressed, Sickert moved away from the natural world and towards a much more unnatural one, the garishly lit, shadowy environment of London music halls and theater. Like his mentor Degas, the energy of such locations thrilled him, but so did their seedy underbellies. And thus he began gravitating towards grittier, darker, and more emotionally and tonally ambiguous interiors. And it is such scenes that have, over the years, linked the artist to our killer. The connection between Sickert and Jock the Ripper is actually not a recent theory, and Cornwell wasn't the first one to bring it to light. The first theory linking Sickert occurred in the 1970s with the release of a so-called Royal Conspiracy Theory, which is still one of the most popular, if still implausible, Ripper theories to date. I won't talk about it here, but rest assured that there is a huge trove of information out there if you would like to do some independent research. In the Royal Conspiracy Theory, though, Sickert isn't the murderer himself, but a possible accomplice, or at least someone who knew of the crimes. In the 1990s, however, a closer examination of Sickert alone hit the bookshelves and news headlines with the release of Gene Overton Fuller's tome, Sickert and the Ripper Murders. Strangely, though, this theory swirled around for almost two decades but didn't really seem to catch serious fire. That is, until Patricia Cornwell, with all the clout and attention garnered by her bestseller status, took up the torch and ran with it. So, was Walter Sickert really Jack the Ripper? What are the arguments for and against his supposed murder spree? We are digging into all of this in two weeks with the continuation of our updated episodes on Sickert and Jack the Ripper. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett and Caroline Holler. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. And additional editing is by Hannah Roberts. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. We are a fully independent podcast, and so we rely on sponsors and donations to keep us going. So if you enjoy the show and have the means, please consider giving a $10 donation that is fully tax deductible to help our show, and thank you for your kindness. And even if you don't have money to give, you can help out our show as well by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen for more details about our podcast, including any images of Walter Sickert and his paintings, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful 
in the true crime realm of art history.